All right, we are live for an RTD Q&A midday live stream. Excited to have first-time guests with us. And so just getting uh, acquainted a little bit with the guests prior to going live. So excited to uh, get your thoughts on uh, where we're at, where we're heading. And, you know, since this is Financial Literacy Month, I figure what better way than to shake some things up and give people something a little bit different outside of the typical advice. I, I got a little echo here. Let me cut some stuff off of my end. <laughs> and then we can get going. So... So first off, Miles Wakeman from BeUnconstrained.com. Uh, welcome to the RTD live stream show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day and connecting with me. You're on the West Coast, and so you still have a little bit more of your day left. And so uh, excited to be able to connect uh, in this time frame. So uh, let's get right into it. So for those that may not know, Miles Wakeman, give us a, a quick synopsis of how you've arrived at this point in your career with the website and the following you have on basically teaching people financial literacy in an unconventional in an unconventional manner. Yeah, um, the good question because I think unconventional is kind of subjective term. I'm, as you may be able to tell, I'm from Australia. That's where my accent is, and I spent the first 25 years of my life as an Australian, being raised under the Australian economic concepts and trying to run businesses and and all of that sort of thing. I'm not somebody who is uh, from an academic background. I didn't even finish high school. So I'm, I'm a self-made independent business owner. I have been since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the age of 25, I had the opportunity to move to the United States and I've lived in the States ever since. So I spent literally sort of half of my life in one place and half of my life in the other. And um, in the process of coming to the US, I came with nothing. I had a suitcase and that was about it and a passport. And I left the United States, I think the first time it was about five or six years later as a millionaire which I thought was wonderful immigrant story, you know, come yeah. in and go. I had to go back to Australia because my mother uh, who passed away shortly after needed my care. So I had to go back there for a couple of years. And then um, having had the opportunity to return again in 1999 um, due to a whole bunch of issues back in Australia, including getting divorced and in a major motor vehicle accident, I pretty much lost everything. Mm -hmm. um, I came back to the country in 99 with nothing. And by 2006, I was a millionaire again. And then 2008 happened. I got through that um, using the techniques that I'd used in past issues with dealing with, um, you know, economic collapses and so on. And today I'm now a multi-multi-millionaire and, you know, I've got property all over the world and uh, I run a bunch of businesses in, in, the, in Phoenix and, and other places. That's kind of where I'm at now. All right. Well, I appreciate you for giving us that rundown. And so you said you've you've done it, you've done it twice. You went from nothing to something. And so you, along the way, I guess the biggest takeaway is the, the learning experiences you had, which is valuable information that you've passed on and continue to pass on now. And so given the fact that this is Financial Literacy Month, I'm glad that we're connecting right now, because if it wasn't for some people alerting me to it, I wouldn't have paid it no mind. But financial literacy, um, I imagine it's one of those subject matters that is it's been the same all of our lifetime, but yet we're now in, in, pre, in unprecedented times because most of that advice or information is shared happens to be during your typical seven year recessionary recovery boom bust stories. But now everything globally is down and out and all the stats show that we are officially in a depressionary environment, but yet I'd imagine the financial advice may not change. So let's start off with you know some of those lessons you've learned and we're able to go through that might be applicable to the audience and those that might have an entrepreneurial spirit or those that might 
be at home suffering from the fact that they don't share in that same philosophy of, you know, working for themselves and, 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 and creating opportunities for other people? Well, I think here's the interesting thing. This might be hope for your listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I made all my money in recessions. Mm-hmm. I made, I, I've made the bulk of my wealth in the worst of possible times. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because I'm a contrarian. I tend to do exactly the polar opposite of what everybody else does. And that's not, I don't try to in any way demean what everybody else does, but I do see, particularly in the United States, very much of a t- trend towards herd mentality. Mm-hmm. And what I simply mean by that is that the reality is what is told to somebody, not what they see with their own eyes. And that typically happens in the time of economic collapses. Um, in bull markets, people, you, you know, the old saying, which is so true, you can never, you know, anyone can make money in a bull market. It doesn't require a very honed business person, somebody with skills, somebody who knows how to negotiate, how to hustle, how to get through what's needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Those skills come out of the the need to be you know, pushed into that corner. If you didn't have to hustle, you probably wouldn't. If you didn't have to be frugal, you probably wouldn't. But the reality is that if you see those things as skills that can be honed and developed and as, and are as important as basic read, write, and mathematics type skills, you can get through anything. Mm-hmm. And then what you realize is when you see things coming, because the world works in cycles, I, I'm one of these guys who preaches this concept of um, universal kind of balancing where you've got ups and downs, you've got, you know, positives and negatives, yin and yang, whatever you want to call it. We've got bull markets, we've got bear markets. These things will never go away. It's how the universe works. And the fact is that if you can tune into that, you can be somewhat predictive of where things will happen. So before you have a collapse, you've already cashed up. Mm -hmm. When the collapse is over, that's when there's really no, I mean, I make my money when I buy things. I don't make my money when I sell them. And part of the reason is um, one of the things that we do on our website, and I, I have a podcast about this, I teach a concept called financial sustainability. And the idea of it is that you should never have to um, spend one hour of any one day selling your time to another person. If you, if you change that model from the very, very beginning, and I can explain the, the general principles for that, you own assets, because the basic typical rule of wealth is that the rich don't have jobs. The rich own. So you want to be an owner. You don't want to be a job. If you can uh, sort of transcend to that place and own things that generate you a dividend, generate you ca- rent income, something of cash flow that can meet what, what I would call your burn rate, that is your, your basic cost of living, and you get those problems out of the way, then your time is completely freed up to pursue every opportunity that comes upon you. And in this world, the opportunities are endless. It's just a question of opening your eyes to see them. It's very, very hard to open your eyes when you're stuck in traffic for an hour a day on a commute to a job you hate in a cubicle you can't stand and a boss you can't, you know, you'd never have a beer with. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that's the world that, that what, 90% of American workers live in. And that's not right. There's a reason why they live in that. You see, I I believe in a concept of four quarters of life. The first quarter is your learning quarter when you're born and you go through school and you come out the other end. The second quarter I call the building phase. That's when you actually build up things, a career, a home, a family, a life. And then the, the third quarter is optimization and consolidation. It's when you start hunkering down and saving. Your kids finish school, 
you, you, you're now looking at your retirement somewhere down the end and the final quarter is, is that sort of waning retirement period. We're all biological me- uh, organisms. We're going ha- to last a certain amount of time and then we break, mm-hmm. right? Simple as that. So what happens is our society lives on a 20, 20th century financial model. You go to school, you go to college, you enter the middle class and you start putting money away in a 401k. The 401k is just a, a simple actuary program that basically says, you give me money, I'll invest it, I'll give you a little bit of it back, and then when you're 65, you can go off into the sunset and live in the Bahamas, whatever you want. It rarely happens. If you look at the percentage of people who actually are able to retire at that age, mm-hmm. it is pathetically low. What they really do is they get you at the age of 18 when you're not even legally in most states allowed to buy a beer you're expected to sign a debt contract for a hundred and something thousand dollars to go to college. And then you've got to pay that sucker off and you can't get out of it in bankruptcy. You're stuck with that thing. It delays your ability to buy property. It, it, it forces you into a job you can't stand. You'll never get out of that treadmill. And then there's this idea they have in their minds that baby at 65, I'll get that golden ticket and I'll get away from it. It never happens. Yeah. What, what stupid idiot would sign up for that? Now watch this. So a part of that narrative that we've been ingrained with or indoctrinated with, as you mentioned, is industrial 20th century type of thinking. But the problem is like right now is the breaking point. And so like right now, that's why I think it's so important to get different perspectives on understanding the the older model that's now expired, I believe, and the new model, which is something that you either adapt to and adjust to and try to learn or you'll you'll be on the outside looking in. And so, as you mentioned, there's opportunities everywhere. And so from a from an informational standpoint, a lot of the information people receive will be based upon a dying paradigm. And we're already entering into a new paradigm. And so, as I like to call it here, just the monetary matrix. And so we've been herded into a actually I'll put it up on the screen here. And so this is something I like to use to give people an idea as to how we've been conditioned um, to look at financial matters. And so let me grab this here. Yeah. And I want to get your thoughts on this as well, because this to me is the the pinnacle of what uh, we, we use as a investment model. And so we got extras pyramid here, which basically is all the things we're encouraged to focus on at the very top, while at the bottom, you know, those things are, you know, are, are intrinsically worth value on the over the long term. We don't tend to pay much attention to. And so all the risk lies up top where there's little risk or minimum risk at the bottom. What are your thoughts on? The model of like real estate investing and all the all the under undervalued assets now moving forward will the same will the same concept still apply in your opinion? Well, I'm a big believer in a, a, a sort of a similar type of diagram. I think called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes, it's a psychological study based on the needs of human beings from mm-hmm. the lowest level being physiological ability to survive, and then moving up the train all the way to you know you can give back to society and transcend the whole thing and hit reach nirvana or something. Um, at the end of the day, I believe that if I can't physically touch something, I ain't going to buy it. Hmm. So I'll buy gold very happily. I will actually, I'll, because I'm a software guy, I have a technology background, I will happily buy cryptocurrency. I will never buy any any Wall Street product because I don't, I can't touch it and I don't know how many counterparties have got their fingers in the pie trying to extract wealth from that. Mm -hmm. Um, I won't buy government debt because at the end of the day, I can't influence government. Um, I'm not interested in bonds. And and at the end of the day, I'm not also as um, 
how do I say this? I am a, I am a dual citizen. I'm a US citizen and an Australian citizen, but actually I'm a citizen of the world. I don't mind where I have to travel to to find wealth. In fact, I've found most of my wealth outside of this country. Mm-hmm. And that tells me that getting a passport is probably one of the most best investments I ever made. Mm. But um, yeah, it, uh, real estate, I love real estate because people always need a roof over their heads. When the rain's coming down or the sun's beating up everybody, you've got to seek shelter. It's a basic physiological need. Mm-hmm. Investing in real estate never goes wrong. It might have its ups and downs. But, but here's the thing. If you're buying real estate to get rent, you only care about what you bought it for because the idea is that if the thing's cash flowing, you're never going to sell it. So you, you don't focus on the CNBCs and the Bloombergs telling you the market's up or the market's down because what the hell do you care? You're making rent money and ideally you went in there with the principle that the tenant was going to pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. So if you walked into that and you weren't greedy to extract money too early, then you can scale this very quickly and the next thing you know, 15 years from now, where all the mortgages are paid off, you're living on the rental income and you're never going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. No. And and that's, again, it's like I can physically touch real estate. I can go and I can see my contractors working on my properties or, you know, maybe properties in other states, but I can visit them. Mm-hmm. At least I have a sense that I own something of substance. It's not paper. It's, you know, paper's just going to blow away in the wind. I, I don't see that happening with a house. Maybe I'm being naive. I don't know. <laughs> You know, but that's real. So I want to also touch on those four phases of life you referenced. And so after after the schooling side of thing, we're encouraged to now majority of the people, you know, think about going out and securing a job so that they can provide for themselves at the same time. Like right now, uh, within the last three weeks now, was it 17 million people uh, are currently Mm -hmm. not able to work a from the fact that, you know, businesses have shut down, but yet out of don't spread, stay home. So government stepping in to try to, you know, backstop some of those losses financially. And so I would imagine if this thing prolongs itself, which I believe it probably will, there's going to be a lot more. And so during that time, what are some tips, tricks that people who now find themselves with a little bit more time on their hands can begin doing, uh, you know, personally to look for opportunities? What type of educational resources? What type of small things can a person do to shift their mind? Because I'd imagine you might not be able to just pick up and go back to your old employer as if everything, everything was fine. So you might have to look for some alternative ways of sustaining yourself. What are some, some simple things you can share with people? Well, um, this, a lot of this is, you know, if, if you could have done this stuff two, three, four years ago, you would not be having a problem today, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, that's great wisdom in hindsight. It never probably works. The reality is that people, people, the first thing people can do in the short term to try to get themselves in a safe place is to focus on their burn rate, is mm. get their frugality in order. And what that simply means is that they need to be able to get a handle on what their outgoings are. Mm-hmm. Now, that could well be something as simple as um, my power bill, my gas in my car, my rent, those things are, are negotiable and they're always negotiable. And there are alternative ways of investing what if you have some money and you don't need to hunger down and, and hold on to it all the time. Maybe this is a great time to invest in solar panels. Maybe mm. it's a great time to invest in things that generate you what you need. And, and here's something that's always been a good trick for me. I don't like dealing in fiat currency. I don't like dealing in money at all. If I could grow my own food and eat that and never have to transact with a supermarket, I would. 
It's mm-hmm. unlikely. If I could, uh, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I have a gym local to us. And we're good friends with that gym. Well, they need, you know, I want to join that gym. It's going to cost me a monthly fee all the time. Well, how, do, how on earth do I, do I do that? Well, normally most people just pull out the credit card. Mm-hmm. Well, immediately I'm going into debt. That's a stupid idea. The second thing is to try and pay cash. Well, you can't really pay cash on a subscribing regular thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard. And you're going to go in every month. And well, I guess you could. But anyway, what I did was I said to the gym owner, what do you need? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a technologist. I can probably build things for you. Do you need a website? Oh, yeah, big time. Okay. Years ago, I built their website and I keep it going. And I've had gym membership for the family for free for life. Hmm. So I've traded skill Mm -hmm. for what I need. There is no dollar in this transaction. There is no 3% merchant processing fee. There is no bank charges. There is no, there's no risk of default. I'm swapping service for service. This is back to basic medieval bartering, but it works. And this is what is a big thing in Australia. Um, We have gone through times when tax policy down there was ridiculous, Mm -hmm. and they created a a thing they called the grey market where you would literally swap service for service and avoid monetary uh, capitalization of anything completely. Now, I'd love to see that come around here, um, but you have to create that environment. And there are ways to do it. If you're looking down the barrel at not being able to get food or something like that, there is assistance. You can get food. Mm-hmm. But why not Why not take, if you've got access to land or you can use somebody else's land, this is the time to start planting. I mean, I went and planted 20 tomato plants in my backyard about a month ago because I like tomatoes. I don't want to buy them. No. I mean, it's just the simple little things. And the, here's the thing. If you've got time because you're out of work or whatever, You've got time. You can yeah. do these little things en masse, and they add up. And little by little, I, I do this thing where I t- try and teach people who come to me uh, a, a concept of in capitalism, we are all businesses. Hmm. In other words, you run your life like a profit and loss statement. You've got your income, less your expenses. And what you're really focusing on is your net profit, what you keep. Mm-hmm. If we stop thinking like we've got to go out and get a job because it's like 100000 bucks a year or whatever it is, and we focus on the income, but we never look at the expense lines because what we keep, what is that Forbes study? 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck every month. Mm-hmm. That's because they're not focusing on their profit line. They're only focusing on their income, and they forget their expenses. They don't live frugal. They spend other people's money, not their own. They don't know the word no. It's not even in their vocabulary. And they, they will buy before they even know what they're buying. If we stop doing that and we reduce our burn rate down to the absolute bare minimum, something comfortable but something that is sustainable, right, mm-hmm. and you focus on what you keep, you take all the pressure off the income. You don't need the income if your burn rate's under control. And when you get into that situation, your income can be derived by no labor. That's the way it should work. What you own generates dividends, generates enough income, cover your burn rate, and what you keep is important. You take that, but what you keep, and you put it back into more income-producing assets, and you keep recycling that process. Rinse and repeat. Give it five years. If you do it right, you never have to work another day in your life. And there's, here's the thing where you were saying about the four quarters of life. This is where the beauty of the whole thing comes in. That last quarter, that retirement phase. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you didn't have to work right now because your income came from your assets. 
you could spend the time in pursuit of things that you're passionate about, that you wanted to, that fulfill your life. There was a study done by Boeing. Uh, the BBC published this a number of years back. And it was a study that um, kind of actually is true. They studied people who retired at the age of 55. And they discovered that of the people who'd retired at the age of 55, their average life expectancy was, I think, 83 years old. This is a U.S. male. I think it was the basis of it. Then they took the same study and they studied people at the age of 65 who retired, those who worked another 10 years. The average life expectancy for those people was 18 months after the date of retirement. 18 months. My father fell into that. Yeah. Right? Here's the problem. 18 months of what? You want to go to Europe and spend some time with the family and do all the things that you wanted to do in retirement? Yeah, you got 18 months to do it. Good luck. That's stupid. So if you didn't have to work today and you were 30 or 40 or whatever because you followed frugality and income-producing assets, you've already retired. And the thing is you didn't rely on some Vanguard index fund to give you a a 4% rule dividend, which never works out. You don't care whether or not the market's paying nothing on your savings because you're not into savings. You're into income production. When you've got money, you put the capital to work. And the, what it generates for you, you don't work, it works. What it generates for you is your income, less your burn rate, what you keep, repeat. Just keep doing that. And you'll never have to work a day in your life. You'll never have to retire. Mm-hmm. That, and then the model and the actuary tables of the world and the bankster system out there is completely destroyed. That's how you do it. Mm, interesting. So that, that def, that's definitely some information that you don't get from your college professors and your teachers in general. <laughs> and so it, it definitely takes actual application of those concepts through, through trial and error or just out of curiosity of wanting to just do things unconventional or uh, not like the ordinary individual might do. And so for those that might be already in that retirement age range and they are currently receiving something via a retirement pension or something like that, I'm assuming all that's about to be challenged real soon. What are some things that they perhaps can probably look to either get get some of those funds into or perhaps find out how they can have what they currently have now grow for them that's not dependent upon the risk that's putting it in all these accounts and products and stuff they try to sell us? That's a good question. I think the only thing right now is cold. I think the only thing is gold. But the problem with gold is it's a long-term hold. You, you're you going to lose money on the exchange fees for um, mm. you know what you buy it for, less spot price and all that. It's going to be the, the margin of purchase, the on-ramp cost. Mm. Um, but having said that, I'm very happy that we invested heavily in gold probably about four years ago, and we've done quite well out of it. Um, and while the market is getting destroyed by manipulation and you know financial engineering and all of those wonderful tricks that they're doing, um, you know, I'm still pretty happy that I'll have something at the end of the day left over. Hmm. It, we have we have a lot of rental properties here in Arizona, hmm. and many of them are um, to lower economic uh, tenants, and nothing against them. I mean, a lot of them are in that situation by luck, uh, by bad luck. A lot of them are in that situation by decisions, and a lot of them are in that situation because they followed mainstream advice. Mm-hmm. Having said that, being the landlord to these guys, I know my tenants pretty well and we get along really well with them and I'm trying to help them out where I can right now. Mm-hmm. And um, in doing that, I've heard their stories. And there are many people who are retirees who are still, they never owned and paid off a property. So they're living in somebody else's rented property. And based on their social security income and what little money they have, they're having a really hard time making it. Mm-hmm. 
And here in Arizona, we're kind of in an unusual situation. We're a border state with border with Mexico. What I've discovered, and I've done this myself, um, is the best opportunities for somebody retiring in the United States right now, you're going to think I'm crazy saying this, move to Mexico. Seriously, move to Mexico. Yeah, there are retirement communities down there in areas like Ajijic, um, San Miguel de Allende, where you can live in a, in a beautiful, you know, two-bedroom apartment for 300 bucks a month, and you could live like a king on $1,500 US a month uh, because it's cheap. And the quality of life down there and the safety factor is nothing like what you see on the news. Um, we own property down there. We live, uh, you know, part of our year I spend in Mexico um, as, as well as other countries. The thing is that you're not – the wonderful here's – the, here's the weird dichotomy. The United States U.S. tax code and the, and the federal financial uh, laws and so on state that if you're a U.S. permanent resident or a citizen, that you will pay tax to the U.S. government until the day you die mm -hmm. worldwide. You earn that money in Belgium, you owe it to the U.S. Well, that's a difficult one for somebody who's come from another country and owns assets overseas. I have to pay a lot of money to tax attorneys to get me through each year of filing or, you know, I don't want to be subject to all of that stuff. But then there's a, there's a flip side to it. No matter where you live in the world, if you're paid money by U.S. Social Security, they will pay it to you wherever you're in the world. So I looked at that whole thing and I thought, well, this is no different than that live like a business, right? Income, less expenses. If your income's going to come in from the United States through the government, then move your expenses to the lowest possible place you can where you're comfortable, where you think it's got great health care and it's got everything you ever need. And that's why I think Mexico is an, is an option for anybody who's who's down on their luck and stuck with it. Now, granted, that's a major shift. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people can't do that, right? But I'll, I'll tell you why it works. I, I needed to get shoulder surgery done last year, and major shoulder surgery, completely redone, um, due to a motor accident I had in Australia. And, of course, I came to it with the U.S. I came with that injury, so it was a pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. I can't afford, you know, Obamacare or whatever. It's ridiculously expensive. I mean, I can, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't going to get it done in the States. I got it done in Guadalajara. I had the best quality medical care I've ever had in my life in a private hospital. Before I got it done, I got a quote of $126,000 to get it done in the United States. Mm. Very expensive surgery. It cost me out the door nine grand down there. I had, sure. the, I had VIP level everything. And it was a two-hour plane trip for me to go down there direct. I just got off the plane, went to the hospital, checked in, had the surgery. Three days later, I'm out. I'm in an Airbnb down there paying next to nothing, living like a king, recovering. A month later, I'm back. And, you know, what am I, $101,000 richer or something? No, $101,000 yeah. richer. You know, that, that's interesting. Like, I had an experience. I was down in Colombia um, earlier in the year, and mm -hmm. I met some tourists there. And, and a young lady said she came there for some dental work. And so I'm thinking like, you know, she was from she was from like California, Phoenix or whatever. She was like, yeah, I'm here. I came here for my dental work. I'm like, I'm thinking like, why in the world? And then she explained the whole scenario of how much cheaper it was. And she did her research and the quality and everything like that is, is Americanized standards just at a fraction of the cost. And that right there, like, wow, like people really travel looking for an opportunity to get the same quality of work for a much cheaper price. So. That is not something that's like just, you know, a one case scenario. A lot of people seem to be doing that, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously not 
while we're locked down. We yeah, yeah, that. not but, now. <laughs> yeah, that's a very common thing here. There's a town on the border of Arizona or California and Mexico called Las Algodonas, and it's a dental, it's the biggest dental medical tourism town in the world. Uh, 117 dentists in a four block area. You can literally park your car on the U.S. side of the border. You walk through a chain link fence. You're in Mexico. You get all your dental work done. You walk back and you're home. And um, my wife had $25,000 worth of dental work done there for four grand out the door. And it's beautiful. And that was years ago and it's perfect. She's had no, tra no trouble at all. Just so happens her dentist lives in Yuma, Arizona, but chooses to practice in Mexico because he can, and he doesn't have to deal with regulatory issues. <laughs> Interesting. Miles, man, this is good stuff. So I want to make sure I open up to any questions for those that are tuning in. So as we're going back and forth, there's people watching us. And I saw I want to check and see uh, what they're, if they have any questions. And so I, I saw something earlier about um, concerns about uh, owning real estate in this current environment, given the fact that if governments are strapped for cash, property taxes might go astronomically high as governments and cities and everybody looks to you know, to try to get some extra revenue out of their out of their uh, local citizens there. What are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, owning a house outright is one thing. It's unfortunate if you don't own it, but you're still trying to get something out of it. How does, how how would you say in the worst case of scenarios where the property taxes become an issue to where you got to figure out, you got to make some tough, just tough decisions there? Well, I think it's where you choose to buy. Um, mm -hmm. Some states are very much welcoming of investors and others are not. Um, an example of that might be, say, California where it tends to be very much focused on tenant rights and it has very high property taxes. And for that reason, as a property um, investor, I would never buy property in California, but that's me. I mean, many people do, obviously, people have got a, a place to live, but it's not a conducive environment. If you look at other states, for example, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and I'm just saying the ones that I know that are in our, our neck of the woods, um, they're very conducive to investors. And that typically means that um, somebody who goes in there to buy real estate is going to get a better return on their money. They're going to be able to evict a tenant if they're a non-payer in a reasonable period of time. And I'm talking like 20, 30 days. Mm -hmm. um, they can get their property back and they can move on to the next one. Now, that doesn't mean that the tenant doesn't have rights. They do, but there's a kind of an expectation that you behave yourself. Mm -hmm. And that means a lot. And so you pick the regions that are conducive to what landlords need. And, and that just is a bit of research. Um, if people do that, they will typically find themselves in a much better and safer position. And what I've also noticed is in situations where there is a willingness for investors and a, a, an embracement of investment in that state, they tend to also have very low property taxes. Now, you may not get as many public services as you're used to in some of the other states. But to be honest, I mean, Arizona is pretty cheap. Um, a $500,000 multifamily rental here will have under like $1,800 a year in property tax. It's not that high. Mm -hmm. So it might be that you've the, the investor just has to shift their focus to regions that are much more conducive to what they want. Interesting. Well, hey, Miles, it has been great having you here on RTD. Uh, definitely, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the title. And so we do have a question here. It says, question says, how do you capitalize on precious metals and crypto if there is a reset or debt jubilee? Great question there. What are your thoughts on that, Miles? Well, that's like asking San Franciscans if they, San Franciscans if they ever want to live there because of earthquakes. Um, <laughs> the reality <laughs> is it's a risk we have to take. There, yeah. Look, at the end of the day, there is no progress without risk. It's the way the world works, right? Yeah. There's always going to be a risk of seizure. 
if you own a safe and you put a whole bunch of precious metal in the safe, or, you know, collector coins, that sort of thing, there's a risk somebody's going to break into your house and steal it. Mm-hmm. If you put it in a bank, there's a risk the bank will bail in and default. Um, if you put money anywhere, there's a risk. There's always a risk. Yeah. The question is, what is the level of that risk and what are you willing to tolerate? For me, I look at it simply by saying, yeah, there is a risk that government seizure of, of bullion could happen. It has happened in the past. But there's also a risk of bail-in by banks. Look at the Bank of Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And that was only, what, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, that That's kind of concerning. Um very concerning because one of the members of the board of the Bank of Cyprus happens to be one of Trump's uh, financial advisors. And so, I mean, I'm not being political. I'm just saying yeah. that there's a there's a high likelihood that we could see repeats of this sort of thing. And, and so, yeah, there's risks, but there's risk crossing the street. There's risk getting up in the morning. You have to learn to live with it. And you find a, a level that you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. right? Now, crypto... Okay, I'm being a software guy. I don't have as much of a concern about it. But the reason I'm I like crypto is not because I'm trying to hodl it. I'm not trying to hold it for speculative advance. I'm trying to see it as a way of a medium of exchange that breaks free of banks. Mm-hmm. And if that could happen, and I could get you know, here's some interesting things that I've learned. The biggest, you know, what the biggest um, income industry in Mexico is? I thought it'd be like oil and gas, maybe, maybe tourism, Mm-mm, something like that. Maybe even drugs. No, it's none of those. It's money, it's money exchange. It's the fees charged when people who come here want to send money back to their family in Mexico. It's those 27% Western Union grab fees. Hmm. That's the biggest income producer in the entire country. Now, in the United States, and I haven't checked the numbers recently, but a number of years back, 41% of our GDP went to financialization transactions. Hmm. That's banks charging fees on fees on fees on fees. And that, to me, is where your money's going to disappear. So to get back to your your listener's question, um, yeah, there's risks. But the risk of doing nothing is far worse because the risk of inflation, which is a baked-in number, is going to destroy any holdings you've got. So if you want to bury the money in the ground, you're welcome to do it. But I can guarantee one thing. With health health insurance premiums going up 45% in the last five years alone and not being factored into the Federal Reserve's basis of inflation calculation, that's that's a crime. In addition, they're they're predicting another 40% health insurance premium increase for next year because of all these COVID virus stuff. Um, These hospitals got to get paid. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we could be seeing an inflation rate that's closer to 20% if you really factor in the actual costs, the stuff that's on those expense line items in your little profit and loss statement, the mm. real cost of inflation, because it ain't what the Fed's telling you. Right. Very true. Very true. Miles Wakeman, I appreciate you taking time. And so I'm actually going to put up on the screen here so people can find out more about uh, what you have going on. So if you guys want, I'll put in the in the chat here. But you have the uh, Be Unconstrained podcast. So I'll copy this link here so people can see. And if you guys are interested in checking out more of what he's talking about and how to be unconstrained, definitely go check him out. So I'll throw this in the chat right here. But other than that, uh, Miles, definitely want to have you back on as time on, as as we get along. We'll move further along this you know c- crazy fiasco world we're in now. Get your thoughts on what's going on as well as 
possible opportunities you see that might be unfolding as things un- unwind. But any last thoughts you want to leave us with here on RTD? Uh, no, I mean, I would just be careful not to fall prey to a lot of the main, mainstream media when it comes to trying to sell fear and doom. I mean, that's a great way to sell, you know, pharmaceutical ads between yeah. the commercials. Um, it, it's it's not real. And mm-hmm. look, if you're a tr- contrarian, recessions are the best thing that could ever happen to you in, the, in, in your life because mm-hmm. I do believe strongly that money never disappears. It just changes hands. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'd leave your your audience with is a, a thing I learned when I was a kid in Australia. You know, in Australia, we, we, we were all living by the ocean. So everyone wants to be a surfer, right? I was one of those kids. And me and my friends used to go down to the beach. We'd travel for like an hour to find the best waves or whatever with our surfboards. We'd go out there and we'd have a whale at a time. It was fun. And it was probably the best education I ever had. And what that means is that I learned when I went out surfing that in order to catch a really good wave, I had to be prepared and positioned in the right place. I had to look on the horizon and see what was coming. I had to pick the right opportunity. And before it came upon me, I had to paddle like crazy. Mm -hmm. And if I was on the right path, I picked that wave up and I had the the best ride of my life. While everyone around me was going, oh, there's a wave, quick, grab it. And then they got dumped every single time. See, the secret, I think, in investing is to be a surfer is to be up, be A, out there so you understand it, B, prepared, you know how to surf, and C, look upon that horizon and pick the one and be ready well ahead of it coming upon you because the, the true nature of a contrarian is to be somebody who saw the future before it happened. And that's the key. Be that surfer. Hey, hey good stuff, man. I appreciate you for sharing that. And so people have a couple, a couple of thoughts about XRP and a little bit more in depth as far as your thoughts on XRP. I'm not sure if you have any particular thoughts on that. Not a fan of a bank owned token. I mean, XRP <laughs> is a bit of a bank, a bank thing. Um, I, XMR maybe, but yeah. not XRP. <laughs> yeah. XMR. That was a good one. All right. Well, with that being the case, everybody has been great hanging out this afternoon and I appreciate my guests for joining me uh, and sharing a wealth of knowledge and, you know, encouraging people to be that surfer, catch the waves early, look on horizon. So definitely learn a couple of things there myself. So Miles Wakeman, I appreciate you. And I will also uh, share that link again in the chat so people can find out more about your podcast. But other than that, let's uh, stay connected and wish you the best in your neck of the woods. And hopefully as this thing unwinds, you know, we'll come out better on the other side than we went in. So Sure, I will. appreciate your, your viewpoints. Thanks for joining me on RTD. Thank you.